Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I don't think I've ever really come right out and said so, but I record all of my shows completely out of order, right? So the order in which my shows are released, you can pretty much rest assured those are that's nothing like the order in which they were actually recorded. And so I guess I hadn't really thought too much about it, but listening to my show has got to be a pretty fucking weird thing because... I make, I've got to make comments and references to things that I've done, but you haven't heard yet. Or I talk about having not done things that you, or talking about things or whatever else. And you guys, I don't know, just, you don't know when you're going to hear that, you know? So, it's just, it's got to be weird. Really weird. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I loves me some comics, movies, and TV shows. Those are my three topics. Comics, movies, and TV shows. Officially, anyway. Unofficially, it seemed like I talk an awful lot about comics to the exclusion of the other two, but I've tried working on that. That, combined with the fact that I mothballed my Star Wars comics episodes, meant something had to fill the void. So why not talk about Smallville? I loves me some Smallville. And I think the very first episode of this podcast pretty much established me among the royal elite of Smallville apologists. Still, all I really did in that episode was defend the show against a bunch of unfair yet common gripes and complaints made by people with, I think, very little familiarity with Superman apart from uh, movies, really is what it comes down to. And in the process, I, I didn't really offer up as much analysis as I might have. So it seems like a good opportunity to fix that. And so it is that I replaced my Star Wars segments with these eight-episode retrospectives where I look back at Smallville on a season-by-season basis. The plan here is to tie subplots and character development and all the other shit that happens in later seasons back to what's come before as I go along. So if what you're worried about is the, the continuity and the connective tissue of the show getting lost in the shuffle, hey, 
Nothing to worry about. I have it under control. Now, the original idea I had was to record a commentary for every episode of the series. But, let's face it, even I don't have that kind of patience. And besides, the only way I could make it through the dreaded Season 4 again is pretty much if I bash my way through an entire case of beer. And honestly, I don't think anybody wants to listen to someone three sheets to the wind attempt a commentary. Incidentally, this all ties in with my uh, big Superman project right now. To celebrate Superman's 76th anniversary, I've been spending lots of time lately talking about various Superman comics. I mean, 76 years is a huge-ass number, and it deserves some celebration. Anyway, to business. Last time, I left off with comments about Smallville Season 1, Episode 13, Kinetic. That means that after these messages, I'll pick everything right back up by talking about Episode 14, Zero. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. Ah. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, Monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no.com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. Oh, shut up. <laughs>
No, you shut up. 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 From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Hi, this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about small boats. Okay, I'm back now, and we're talking about Smallville Season 1. Now, as I said before the break, I'm resuming my discussion of the first season with episode number 14, Zero. Now, the reason to love this is kind of self-evident. This was the first time the show went to the heart of who Lex Luthor is as a character. Now, we all know what he'll grow up to be, and that's what makes it fascinating how he wove a complex layer of truths, half-truths, lies, damn lies, and outright bullshit to cover for someone he cared about. He claimed responsibility for shooting a man so that Lionel would arrange to have everything swept under the rug. Now, the series up to this point has shown that Lex doesn't give his loyalty or affection lightly. But this is the first time we see Lex attempt to make a genuine connection with someone only to lose out in the end and pay a steep price for it in the process. <clears throat> now, in a nice little bit of continuity, Cameron Dye returns for a cameo as Sam Phelan. You see, I honestly don't think anybody would have complained if it had been some other cop on Lionel Luther's payroll who set up the cover-up for Lex at Club Zero. But the fact that it was Phelan... I don't know. It just works for me. In general, I dig how Lex's backstory was unrolled as Smallville went along. Al Goff and Miles Miller took the risk of letting us get to know the modern-day Lex and become familiar with his very gray sense of ethics where the ends justify the means. After that, they introduced us to characters who gave us a very slanted view of Lex both now and as a kid. Now, 
it'd be a while before they gave us the full sucker punch of Lex's backstory, but Zero is still the first indication we get that as much as anything, Lex is, a, he's a victim. He's, he's sort of a victim of, of circumstance rather than a natural-born, diabolical supervillain. At the same time, though, Lex never becomes so sympathetic that you root for him. Whatever his history is, he could have overcome it. He didn't have to make the choices he ultimately makes. Goff and Miller just gave him plausible reasons to make those choices. Another Matzo Ball introduced in this episode is goings-on with Clark's adoption. Now, it was commonly known that the Kents had adopted Clark, and I think most people would have been content to just leave it at that. But Goff and Miller saw a story potential there. Now, it'll be season two before they fully pay it off, but the germ of it's introduced very early on in the series, and that plays for me. Even now, people shit all over Smallville for a supposed lack of vision and forward planning. And I have to wonder how they miss things like this. But then I remember that most of them have other axes to grind that really have nothing to do with the show itself, and there's my answer. Now, one of the big themes of Zero as an episode is secrets from the past coming back to haunt the characters. Now, it has general applications where the ancient plumbing at the Talon causes nothing but trouble for Lana, and also where... Pete recounts his family troubles with the Luthers. But it's also applied very specifically to Clark, where the secrets of his adoption start coming to the surface, and Alex, where his covering up someone else's homicide almost gets him killed. Lex did a merciful thing in protecting Amanda. But was it the right thing? Obviously not. Now, apart from not having a kryptonite freak, Zero's also the first time where Clark effectively serves as a supporting character to somebody else's story. The conflicts and trouble in Zero bite mostly Lex in the ass. He ends up having to clean things up as best he can, after which Clark has to save the day. And that's Clark's role in this story. But it's interesting to note that Lex doesn't offer Clark much in terms of full disclosure. So... The 15th episode, Nicodemus. It's significant for introducing what would become a fairly reliable Smallville trope. Character or characters lose their mind for one episode, do all kinds of crazy shit, Clark saves the day, character or characters regain their senses, and not only are they none the worse for wear, usually, not always, but usually, they don't remember a damn thing that happened. The agent of everybody going nuts in this instance is a kryptonite-infused flower. The, uh, this episode's significant for amping up a lot of tension that was already on the table. In Zero, the last episode, Lex was falsely implicated and a lot of livestock on the Kent farm being poisoned. This time out, a Luthercorp employee cr- crashed his truck into Jonathan's truck because this was... This employee was the first to go berserk thanks to the Nicodemus flower. So that's twice lately that Luther Corps made Jonathan's life hell. So after Jonathan gets a helping of the Nicodemus flower and starts going crazy himself, 
he's even more open with his disdain of all things Luther than usual. Which, in Jonathan's case, is really saying something. Still, it's worth remembering that Jonathan had more than just his usual loathing for all things Luther working against him this time out. <clears throat> like I said, in, his very, in the very recent past, his life had become a lot more difficult than it needed to be, strictly because of the Luthers and no other reason. My point is that he had a rational cause to be angry. So, deeper themes and implications. Honestly, this episode wears that stuff on its sleeve. It's about the dangers of acting strictly on impulse. Several characters become utterly dominated by id. There's no before, no after, no limits, and no consequences. There's only what they want, and there's only now. That's the obvious stuff. The less obvious stuff is Chloe conducting a poll where people are asked about their deepest desire. And she's shocked to find that teenagers think primarily about sex and violence. Still, this episode's notable for, the, for being the first time that Clark and Lana kiss. Now, true. Lana was basically drugged out of her mind on the Nicodemus flower. She was completely out of whack, and she didn't remember a thing about it. But she did confirm that she had a thing for Clark. I'm sure there's Whitney to consider. So she can't reciprocate when Clark shows interest in her. At least not when she's in her right mind. And he couldn't fully pursue her because, again, there's Whitney to consider. But this is the first character out of character episode. Character out of character. Kook. You see what I did there? Anyway, so, in the moment, Clark and Lana play tonsil hockey without too much remorse about it, since Lana, like I said, was completely out of her mind, and let's cut the shit, Clark's a horny teenager. That's not to say there aren't ramifications here. There are. Lex was still bullied by Jonathan. Clark still saw Lana in her skivvies and tasted the bottom of her stomach. And Chloe has to acknowledge that Pete Ross has needs, too. And at some point, everybody tries to kill everybody else. I'm mean, Seriously, the shit's almost Reservoir Dogs at one point. And to think, Chloe was surprised at how much people thought about sex, violence, or some weird fucked-up combination of the two. Oh, yeah, one other thing. People make a lot of hay about the supposed distance between Smallville and Metropolis, but this episode... Nicodemus puts the metropolis skyline within eyesight of Smallville's city limits. I'm going to be coming back to this way down the line, so just remember I said this, alright? Episode 16, Stray. My original note for Stray consisted of, I don't like Stray. After which I was just going to move on. But as I reviewed the show, I realized that like everything else with Smallville, especially in the first season, it's a bit more complicated than all that. Now, first, I don't like the kid who played Ryan. And I'm sure he tried. I, I'm, I'm sure he tried. But, nevertheless, he makes Jake Lloyd look like John Malkovich. And I also, I just don't like Ryan as a character. 
So those are just two big problems right there. Still, there are redeeming qualities here. For one thing, for everything else I can say about this episode, Tom Welling has pretty good chemistry with Ryan. And you can you can kind of buy the sort of older brother thing that Clark develops with Ryan. Ryan also serves as a convenient foil to build up other subplots. He indirectly leads Lex to tell Clark about his younger brother, Julian. Lex basically gives Clark a sanitized version of what happened with Julian, and this is the first time we hear about it. But, as with Clark's adoption, later we're going to find out the truth is just a little bit more complicated than that, but nevertheless, this is where the concept is introduced. Ryan directly leads Lex to tell Clark that Lionel's invited him back to Metropolis. And Lex, for his part, he's struggling with the decision because on paper, it's exactly what he wants, but at the same time, he's grown to love Smallville and the relationships that he's made there. So leaving isn't the no-brainer for him that he thought it'd be. Again, this ties back to Lex's need for true acceptance and friendship. For that, he might forsake the life of a big corporate titan that he always wanted. Ryan also ups the ante with Chloe's crush on Clark. He tips Clark off that Chloe wants Clark to ask her to prom, and she's even picked out a, uh, a dress for the occasion. Did I say prom? The spring formal is what it is, so if I said prom, forgive me. God love him, but Clark isn't too swift on the uptake here. I think it's... It's kind of obvious that Chloe's feelings for Clark were pretty heavily implied early on. I think as far back as Hug, maybe even before that. And basically, it was everything all, it, it was all but explicit before this, but this is the first gold plated promise that he's gotten from her. And he still doesn't know how to manage the situation. Something else. The warrior angel and Davilicus angle bugs the fuck out of some people, and I just don't understand why. Maybe it's that, apparently, fictional life can't imitate metafiction. At least not when it comes to superheroes. Not for any particular reason, you understand, it just upsets a bunch of pissy fans. But anyway, deeper themes and implications... Honestly, I'm coming up a little bit short this time out. Obviously, Ryan's abilities as a telepath cause a lot of trouble. Secrets being forcibly dragged to the surface. There's maybe a little something-something there about letting people believe what they want to believe rather than forcing them to live up to someone else's arbitrary definitions of, our, of honesty and openness. On the other hand, though, shit, that's Smallville at any given moment. The counterpoint there, though, is... How people react to other people's revelations once their secrets get exposed. As much as anything, Chloe's horrified to discover that Clark knows about her crush on him. But once things reach that level, she needs the validation of him reciprocating her feelings. Same thing for Lex. He wasn't really ready to tell Clark that he might leave Smallville soon. Ryan dragging it to the surface before Lex was ready to talk about it didn't help anybody with anything. So maybe the takeaway theme here isn't having to live up to somebody's arbitrary definitions of honesty so much as how other people react when secrets that they're not ready to share 
become exposed anyway. Huh. Whatever. Anyway. On to episode 17. Reaper. I almost invoked the stray clause where I was going to say, I don't like Reaper, and then just fucking move on. But, as with stray, there's just more going on here. Now, I'm just going to put it out in front street, alright? The main plot, the A plot, for Reaper just isn't very interesting to me. There's no way around that. But, the subplots keep the episode interesting. First off, there's business with Lex declining Lionel's invitation to come back to Metropolis. Lionel's kind of miffed about that, and so in retaliation, he orders a complete audit of all Lex's books, and he sends his lapdog Dominic to settle Lex's hash. Now, Dominic's been looking forward to any chance he can get to put Lex under his boot, and he feels pretty good about himself until Lex factually points out that his father, Lionel Luther, raised him in a shark tank to be a shark. He intentionally trained and educated any semblance of a conscience out of Lex. And now Dominic is trying to throw his balls around and show Lex who's boss? Lex probably did the right thing by telling Dominic to watch his back. I mean, he's got one zinger after another for Dominic. In fact, this whole episode is filled with snappy dialogue. Your father's very disappointed with you, Lex. My father's disappointment is perennial. Only the circumstances change. What do you want, Dominic? Do you know what my father gave me for my 10th birthday? A copy of The Will to Power. Behold the Superman. Man is something to be overcome. Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, Nietzsche. They were the voices that nurtured me after my mother died. My father made every question a quiz, every choice a test. Second best was for losers, compassion for the weak, trust no one. Those are the lessons I grew up with. I'll remember that if I'm ever interviewed by the Biography Channel. All I'm saying, Dominic, is try and remember who I was raised by. I try to deny it, but I'm still my father's son. Tread carefully. That's not fair. I don't think you understand how I regard Clark and your family. Yes, I do. I understand perfectly well. We're just the pawns in your eternal chess game with your dad. Do you have a family photo? Yeah, I got lots of family photos, Lex. The only picture of my father and me appears in the Luther Corp annual report. <laughs> Is this the part where I'm supposed to feel sorry for you? No. I just want you to understand if I'm guilty of anything regarding your family, it's envy. You have no idea how lucky you are. When my father dies, kings will come to his funeral, but when yours does, his friends will come. Then there's a discrepancy between the purchasing and shipping records. Stop. I know my father authorized this investigation, but enough bean counting for one day. 30-year-old, single malt. Also bought with my father's money. Make sure you jot that down. 
Let's be frank, Dominic. My father sent you here to spy on me because he's afraid of how well I'm doing. This was my last chance to prove myself, and he just assumed I'd fail. Now he has to revise his definition of me. I'm not just a screw-up son anymore. Now I'm competition. And my father only knows one way of dealing with competition. There are some things better left between patient and therapist, Lex. You know, in ancient Persia, the kings would kill a messenger who brought them news they didn't like. In modern times, a sword in the chest might seem a little extreme. Something more subtle would be in order. Enjoying your drink? Clark, I just left Tyler in the graveyard. Are you okay? He heard Whitney talking about his father. He said that he could bring him peace. Did you call the police? Where are you going? Don't look at me. He does that all the time. There's some other stuff, too. Dominic let slip to Jonathan that Lex has been researching the Kent family in general and the crash on the bridge in particular. The crash on the bridge from uh, the pilot. And it's severe enough that it's starting to create an accounting problem for Luther Corp's budget. Think about that for a minute. A big company like Luther Corp, and now this is starting to show up as a major dent in their books. Now, obviously, Jonathan isn't very happy to hear about that and starts an argument with Lex about it. This is another in a growing list of things about the Luthers that just piss Jonathan off. This episode centers heavily on the complicated relationship between fathers and sons. It's not the first time that Smallville's broached this subject, and God knows it won't be the last, but it is the first time that Goff and Miller can find the, the issue to only fathers and sons. Lex's relationship with Lionel, it is what it is. And it's not based in love. It's about power and control. And it's nothing new for Lex and Lionel to be at each other's throats. Lex only succeeds in Lionel's eyes when he finds a way to win their little pissing contests. And when push comes to shove, that's all Dominic's visit to Smallville is. Still, it's something new, or at least rare, for Jonathan and Clark to find themselves in these same types of conflicts. Clark doesn't like fishing. But for his own part, Jonathan just wants a chance to spend time with his son. Whatever activity they're involved in at the moment is, is incidental to that. Jonathan interprets Clark's distaste for fishing as rejecting his friendship and re reacts badly to it. And who can blame him? And I think it would be fair to say that Lex's offer of baseball tickets don't exactly smooth things over either. Whitney's relationship with his dad is built on admiration, which is why it's tough for him to visit his dad in the hospital as he dies of vague fluenza, the mystery illness. All of them have to come to some kind of resolution here if they want to move forward. Lex resolves his problem by trussing Dominic up, stuffing him in the trunk of a car, hand-delivering him to Lionel, and saying that any future accounting inquiries should be done personally. Clark and Jonathan resolve their differences by talking and just leveling with one another. Whitney has to put on his big boy pants and visit his father in the hospital. 
It could be his last chance for all anybody knows. Deeper themes and implications. The issue in this episode is that the two sides in all these conflicts can't resolve anything until they come together one-on-one. -on -one. Referees and intermediaries just make things worse. The only true and lasting resolutions in Reaper come from both sides acknowledging, first, that there is a problem, second, that both sides have legitimate points of view, and third, agreeing not to make this mistake again in the future. True, those lessons are learned to varying degrees and with different manifestations, but the core conflicts and the core resolutions really aren't so far away from each other. Lex and Lionel, Clark and Jonathan, and Whitney and his father have to come face to face to resolve these, these problems. Alright, so that's enough of that bullshit. I think that pretty much wraps it up this time. I've got another show to cover, the remaining Season 1 episodes, but that's another discussion for another time. That'll be next time. For now, I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Some, well, I've got some feedback, and some very, at least for me, unusual feedback. This comes from PQ River, 
and he's emailed it to me, but it's not really an email. Basically, in his, in an episode of his show, he decided that he wanted to tackle the subject of just how long comics are going to last. This is something I've been talking about for a while. And so he wanted to just kind of tackle that for himself on his show. This is the Overnightscape Underground uh, uh, podcast, which you can find at onsug.com. This is the uh, February the 27th episode. This is, I'm not even quite completely sure how to pronounce this, but it's its called the Quackiversal Satellite, Another Four Things. Again, dated February the 27th, 2014. And this is what PQ River has to say. Ah, yes. On a, a recent, if not the most recent, uh, Trentus Magnus program on the Two True Freaks Network, he posited a question to uh, all. Uh, when and how long do you think the comic book industry will last when do you think it will be over and uh, I think it's long past over I think it's like some sort of dead shambling thing trying to maintain properties and suck whatever juice out of them it possibly can uh, for films television programs and other I mean it's almost like professional wrestling has become. They make more money selling you the t-shirts and the videos and uh, all the accessories than they do act- you actually going out and seeing an event or watching it on television or any of that. It's all one big, you know, from the video games. Lord only knows what other packaging and promotion is attached to these things. But the actual comic books... And that's the thing, and that's one of my points. The death of comic books, as much as a lot of people feel this was important, was when comic books were elevated, when they started throwing around terms like graphic novels and uh, literary pretensions. I mean, this is all well and good, and I am... As much as uh, I've read a lot of the most pretentious, literary, pretentious comic books and supported them. And Cerebus, the 300-book three, the 300 book novel, basically. I mean, it, it's just so much more than your typical comic book series. But, uh, okay, let's give an example. Jack Kirby created all kinds of stuff, was so prolific, he did thousands and thousands of pages of comics. Do you think for one minute that if he was getting a page rate like somebody like Todd McFarlane, he would have produced one twentieth of what he did back then, one hundredth? Comic books are by necessity and comic fans and comic artists don't probably don't like the but it's like podcasts and th- this is low art this is not oil paintings on the sistine chapel this is not um this is just churning out storytelling at a steady pace uh it 
developed out of newspaper comic strips. That's another thing. When the newspaper comic strip died, uh, you know, when your source material is now an empty nothing, uh, that's what well are you drawing from is another thing that I often wonder. Well, comic books now, everybody is out looking to create that character that's going to get them uh, the licensing and their percentage and their royalty. And I appreciate that. Like anybody else in our culture, we want to maximize what we can get for our art and our creativity and more power to it but what this has done comic books i mean a character would last i mean soup there are notable exceptions but i have been reading and looking at and studying the golden age of comics and up into the 50s and 60s reading a lot of these alter ego magazines that uh, Roy Thomas has been so kind as to produce over the last 15 years or so and I've read about 20 back issues and continue to read them and these are people who made a living and they made an okay living. Nobody was getting rich. Nobody was going to... The artists were not going to go out and start their own comic company and become millionaires. It was a different era. And what was most important was getting X amount of pages out a month telling a stories about the characters of a certain quality. And... Uh, that was it. It was rolling the crank. It was an assembly line. And there were some very notable writers and very notable artists. And there are a lot of stories behind them, which is why I love reading these alter ego comics. But uh, comic books are that, that none of that is there anymore. I mean, the things that actually were seen as the savior of comics, the cult of the individuals, um, all of these uh, prist uh, prestige formats. This is all well and good, but where did it get us? $4 comic books. That's right. Uh, do you think they would sell more units if a comic book was more reasonably priced? I don't know. I really don't. I think they've tried uh, selling comics cheaper. And now that we have digital comics, you really run into a serious quandary. And uh, being a book lover, this is something I go back and forth on. Is it really green anymore to waste one tree to produce paperback novels, comic books, or any of these things when we can now uh, eschew the use of paper and watch these things on a screen. Yes, it is a more impersonal thing. Yes, I miss the smell, touch, feel. But I miss the old, real comics. Uh, you know, the ones that were like cheap newsprint and... Uh, uh, the the uh, present day uh, comic book, yeah, it's still paper and it's still a comic book and it's still a, st a step more real than these digital comics. But I don't know 
if it can be justified anymore to kill a bunch of trees to produce comic books or magazines or especially i mean you know another romance novel has been published i mean people who read romance novels i mean the people who publish them should give them the damn kindle and just charge them for the novels i mean there's just the paper oh and that this goes back to when they uh, invented the computer. They thought that they would cut the use of paper because now we don't need to store this stuff on hard copy. It can be stored and backed up digitally. And we have actually uh, doubled or tripled our use of paper because we just produce more paper anyways. Uh, we don't trust this digital storage and uh, more and more it's becoming reliable i mean you can now put your stuff up in clouds and you know, to double triple backup and uh yeah it's, it's, all of this material that is being stored forever that i can't even imagine i mean now that i have access I mean, even if you just go to digitalcomicsmuseum.org where they have just the public domain all of the uh, defunct companies and i don't think anybody could possibly read all the comics they have posted there i mean i am the, as i have mentioned reading through uh or at least uh, so far uh these superman issues i started with about issue 10 and i am now somewhere in the 30s i believe and it's 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 a massive amount of stuff it's it's monumental what has stacked up since 1938 and i cannot say that i could ever catch up with it that's a lot of stuff so how long will the i how long will the comic book industry continue to shamble onwards as long as they can squeeze a buck out of the properties that they stick in them and continue to uh, support itself. I mean, as long as there are Superman and Batman movies and whatever else, and Nick Fury TV shows, and, you know, whatever Marvel's doing these days. Like I said, I just I don't keep up with the new stuff. I take a peek, I look at it, and it's just... I'm. I'm reading Supermans from 1944 and uh, old All-Stars with the Justice Society. And uh, I've been reading Archie's Madhouse, uh, Archie's kind of uh, mad magazine that they did in the late 50s and uh, 60s. And this, I find it much more entertaining if you handed me a pile of the latest brand new 2014 comics and a pile of these. I... I this is being done of my own free choice, so as far as I'm concerned, if the comics industry is for somebody else, um, and I figure it died somewhere around the time that uh, in the newspapers they squoze the Charlie Brown strips, the old peanut strips, to fit their format, and instead of a circle, Charlie Brown's head is an oval, and nobody says anything, and nobody cares, and they shrunk them down, and they squoze them up, and, uh, you know, that's nobody cares. Nobody cares. Now, let me begin by saying I've never received an email before where... 
somebody basically attached their feedback in sort of a MP3 or WAV format, right? I never uh, that that's never happened before. Now I'm not discouraging the practice. In fact, far from it. I I would actually encourage it. If anything, I think it. Uh, if anything, it, what it stands to do is encourage listener participation in a big bad way. So if you would prefer to send email and just type your message there, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But if you'd actually like to take the time to record a, I don't know, just record whatever it is that you're thinking, whatever your feedback is, whatever it is that you're responding to, record that and then send it to me either as a wave for, uh, as a wave file or an MP3 file and just send it to me that way at trennismagnus at gmail.com. By all means, fucking go for it. I, I, I encourage it. So I don't know how many uh, podcasts out there actually have feedback and in terms of any kind of audio file so that suits me just fine now to be fair to pq river this isn't actually feedback for me this is actually a segment of his show that he sent over to me and that's well whatever it's still cool so and i also appreciate uh you pq taking the time to uh, talk about me on your show i definitely appreciate that so thank you very much you know and i tend to agree with you uh pq i also kind of think that Comics, they've gotten a little bit of life, right? They Basically, it, for sure, DC, they got sort of a new lease on life when it comes to digital and the things that, and the books that they're selling digitally because theoretically, at least, their overhead, I shouldn't say it's zero because obviously anything has cost to it, but it's the overhead that, and, you know, Basically, their ability to get any kind of return on their investment is that much higher when we're talking about about digital. And I, 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 on the one hand, I do want to acknowledge that yes, digital has been kind of a kind of a boon for comics. But at the same time, I don't know that that's necessarily put if digital has necessarily put the industry at large. In the black. Now, I'm not saying that they were necessarily ever operating in the red, but at the same time, you know, it, it just, in order for digital to fully make up the slack, which, by the way, that's an argument nobody's making, but even if digital was somehow making making up all the slack, what you'd basically need is digital comics that are selling in excess of something like 300,000 uh, copies of, uh, of their really premier books, 300,000 copies per month. And... To my knowledge, that is not going on. So I tend to agree with you whenever you say that that comics are sort of... I almost don't want to say past their expiration date, but that does seem to be the best uh, turn of phrase for it. And the part about this that, that at least I'm struggling with is I can't figure out if this is just the natural end of the comic book industry based upon just the way that media, you know, all media are, are, are going these days. I mean, it used to be that the comic books were basically cutting edge entertainment and cheap entertainment at that, but cutting edge entertainment for kids. And that that's not the case anymore. And it honestly, it really hasn't been for decades. I mean, honestly, kids entertainment dollars are much more likely spent on things like video games that you know you can not only not only do you get so much more out of it in terms of bang for your buck but it also has repeat play value you know and so look i'm not a gamer never really have been video games really are not my thing but at the same time you know 
it just seems like that long ago eclipsed comics as being the premier media, entertainment media for kids. And it's got all the interactivity and stuff. And in fact, it just seems like video games have even really replaced action figures as well. So it's it's kind of a two-for-one thing. I mean, I do think small children uh, buy action figures, or at least their parents buy them. And I mean like really small children, like kids that are three, four, five years old. And then also adults, collectors. Uh, people basically your age and mine that go out and, and buy these action figures and all these things. And... You know, but it just kind of feels like that's what was once the toy biz, the, the, the toy business's bread and butter, their sweet spot. You know, kids from about the age of six to around 11 or so. That, too, is long gone. And I can't help but think, you know, there was a time when that was the comic industry's target audience as well. And video games, it seems like, has bumped them both out, you know. And I guess there's really no way to say it without sounding kind of like an old fuddy-duddy, but, you know, I, it's true, you know? I mean, I do think that kids are just kind of missing out, you know, if for no other reason than the imagination factor. You know, whenever you play a video game, basically the visuals of it are all set. The storyline of it is set. The characters, all set. And you even have, you know, cut scenes and stuff, so, you know, you actually do fill in plot and everything. And... I just don't know that that's necessarily beneficial to kids' imaginations. I mean, if you go back and read, like, early, early, early Golden Age comics, right? What you find is that you couldn't even necessarily take the colors of Golden Age comics completely literally, right? By which I mean... Okay, well, take Batman, right? The first maybe 12 issues or so of Batman, right? Where he has, like, these purple gloves... Well, comic books had a pretty limited color palette at the uh, at, at the time, and also at the time, you know, a colorist had to he had to create as much contrast on the page as he possibly could. And you had a gray bodysuit, a black cape. I don't give a shit what those blue highlights were later interpreted to mean. Batman's cape is supposed to be black, and he has a yellow utility belt. And so those are three colors right there. You need something that you can use to contrast his gloves and his hands against the rest of his body. And so I don't think we were necessarily supposed to think that Batman's gloves were purple. The colorist just needed to use purple to make the point. And if you... I was... I am really pretty much obsessed with the first... Basically the first 12 the first year or so of Golden Age Batman, right? Basically, Detective Comics number 27 to Detective Comics number 37, right? Year-ish of... The first year-ish of Golden Age Batman. I am obsessed with it, just because I think it's fucking cool. But one of the things you learn very early on is that you do kind of have to use your imagination a little bit to read this comic book. And whenever you're playing with action figures as a kid, you have to use a shitload of imagination in order to... Whatever, you know, plot it is that you've come up with that, you know, the good guys have to rescue the stolen briefcase from the bad guys and all this, whatever it is, right? And, you know, a fair amount of thinking and imagination has to go into this stuff. And so my point is that stuff that's all kind of absent with video games because it's all, it's all been taken away from you. 
and you don't really get a chance to, in your imagination, create your own world. You know, whenever you read comics, you know, you can imply, <clears throat> or actually, no, you're not implying, you, you can kind of infer uh, character arcs, or hell, for that matter, even character interactions. You know, maybe a visit to Commissioner Gordon that there really wasn't time to show in, in an issue of Detective Comics. You know, stuff like that. And it just kind of feels like that that's the stagnating influence that video games have on children, that they don't use their imaginations as much. And so on the one hand, well, actually, I, I guess either either way you look at it, really, I don't... I Or I guess I lament the rise of video games because it, I think it does kind of lead to a kid's atrophy, the atrophy of his imagination. And... It just bugs me. It just bothers me, that's all. And so, again, I know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know how things are these days, blah, blah, blah. Trust me, I got the memo. But I'm just saying, it just kind of bugs. It, it, it just bugs me, that's all. So, And I do think that's it, because I don't think there were any iTunes reviews. I don't think, in fact, you know what, I don't, I mean... As I record all this, I don't think I've actually had any new iTunes reviews to talk about in quite a while. Yeah, no, and uh, no, no new iTunes reviews either. So that's that. But again, first, I just want to, I just want to thank PQ Ribber for uh, taking the time to uh, mention me and talk about me on his, uh, on his show, and then also for sending me uh, a little clip of his show. I definitely appreciate that. And again, I just want to remind all of you that uh, his show, The Overnightscape Underground, can be, uh, you can listen to it at onsug.com. And the clip that I played came from, uh, well, actually, it was sent to me directly by PQ Ribber himself, but it was actually taken from the episode dated February the 27th called Quackwaversal Satellite, Another Four Things, and again, dated February the 27th. So, uh, any of you want to check that out? I do very highly recommend his show. No one, no one really has a show out there that's quite like his. Even Tom Panarese and his pop culture affidavit, it's not exactly the same thing because PQ Rivers' pop culture fixations are a lot more esoteric and I would dare say unheard of to a lot of people than... Uh, than anything that Tom Panarese is likely to cover. So the minute you hear pop culture, you may think that PQ River has a, has the same type of show that Tom Panarese does. Totally fucking different. Both of those shows are awesome, but they have really, as far as like topics and subject matter and those sorts of things are concerned, they really, they really have nothing to do with one another. So anyway, so that's that. But like I said, just want to thank PQ River for taking the time to send that in to me. And I also want to encourage anyone else, if you want to record a, uh, record yourself, you know, just shooting the breeze and your feedback to me. Anything that you want to talk about, pretty much, just by all means, send it to me. Either wave format or MP3 format. I won't. I would prefer not to accept anything else. And in fact, I may not be able to accept anything else. And anyway, so you can send your your feedback. Uh, you can email it, whether it's just text or if you have uh, a wave file that you want to send to me. You can send it to trennismagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. And as always, I want to encourage everybody to 
to, to file positive iTunes reviews for me, I'd really appreciate that because it's going to make my show more visible in iTunes. The name of my feed is Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. So if you can, just search for that and then file your iTunes reviews that way. Otherwise, I appreciate everyone taking the time to listen, and I think that's it. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so... Why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.